You're wrong, so instead you rest your head on the arm of the couch Envision in your head of a great sex bout Worthy opponent, all you wanna do is bone it You ask, can you kick it? She says you can't stick it This is the case, the situation is sticky Should you try to kiss or hit towards a hickey? Not even, you can ask even If the vibe ain't right, huh, you're leaving Hit the road, Jack, and all of that But if she offers her a bowl, she'll drop your load Right smack dab in the middle Get the kit and I got crazy tender fiddles. Uh-huh, you know the science, you get buck wild. Running Mac games as if your name was Scott Styles. Or better yet, Magic, or even call my own. Regardless who it is, your aim is to bone. Hey, what's going on, Champagne Sharks? This is my favorite type of episode when I have the person in the studio, in the palatial studio, that is a small room in my apartment. And this is Trevor. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. You can go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks to become a member, a patron, and you get access to double the episodes and also all the back episodes, which at this point, the back premium episodes are over 100 episodes. And something we've been doing lately, we have a Discord server and we've been using it a lot more. And one of the things we've been doing in it is we've been announcing guests beforehand like we just started this like announcing guests beforehand and letting people know and if you're a patron and as a patron you get access to the discord server you can actually suggest questions or pitch questions to the guests that you're interested in so that's another reason why you should consider joining because you will get advance notice to the guests and the option of suggesting your own questions so there's that and without further ado we have our guest today Heidi Matthews if you can introduce yourself and let people know who you are and where to find you Sure. Yeah. So it's more than a small room. It's a amazing Brooklyn apartment. And I'm <laughs> overjoyed to be here. Uh, so my name is Heidi Matthews and I am a professor. I teach law uh, at Osgoode Hall Law School, which is in Toronto. Um, and if you want to find me online, it's Heidi, H-E-I-D-I underscore underscore Matthews. Um, and you can also look up just my, I guess, Oz, my, you know, academic profile or whatever online so yeah so thanks so much for having me this is really exciting yeah you know um a lot of americans like are very bad with geography and knowing what's going on <laughs> and stuff and osgood's a pretty uh important law school that's a powerhouse right uh yeah in Canada? So. <laughs> no don't be humble that's a um, I'm really happy to be there. It's cool for a couple of reasons. Like it's Canada's historic uh, English speaking law school or one of them, right? So one of the original or whatever. So it's been around for a long time, which is good. It's got a lot of history. Um, more interestingly, or at least as interestingly, it's a pretty left leaning place. So we're really interested in social justice questions um, writ large. Uh, and we also have a just a really diverse and exciting and increasingly young faculty. So I'm happy just to be surrounded by my coworkers and my amazing students. And I actually mean every word of that. People who know me know that I don't, I don't, I don't pull my punches. So I actually totally mean all of that. And tell us about like your um, history, as far as like your specialties, what you, um, where you've been and what you're doing now, as far as, the focus of your research? Yeah, so um, so I've been a professor now for, I guess, three years. Um, before that, uh, I did a PhD and a postdoc and stuff. I did spend some time living in the US, living in Europe, living in West Africa. Um, and I work on two main areas. So international law, but specifically international criminal law. And so what that means is stuff like genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes and what we do about those things. And then the other main area of focus is sexuality and the law. Um, and so I teach a seminar in that at Osgood, um, and it allows me to do 
uh, work on uh, the Me Too movement in particular, um, but also more broadly, just ask, asking questions about how we regulate the way that we fuck each other and why. Now, how did you go from one to the other? Uh, like, because I think they're a lot more related than people think, like international stuff and then this. Like on the surface, they uh, seem a little bit far apart, but in listening to you appear on other shows and reading your articles, the connection kind of, the nexus kind of became more clear, but I wanted you to explain kind of how one led to the other or how they overlap. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so one way of putting that that might be a little bit counterintuitive, but but might also resonate um, is just to think about the way in which, uh, you know, the way in which we go around exerting power, like our actual armed military force in the world, whether you're American or whether you're into the UN or whether, you know, you've got other sorts of commitments, thinking about the way that we go around exer for exercising force in the world and what goes along with those, um, those impositions of force, right? So what goes along with the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. Um, what goes along with that is something like Abu Ghraib, right? And the sorts of sexualized torture um, and domination that happened there. So there's a, a really important way in which, you know, being violent in the world for political reasons is an erotic moment. And so that's not what people gen hmm. tend to think about, right? Um, Wait, wait, wait. So repeat that one more time. Being being violent in the world it's, is it's there's a level. Let me try and say it maybe a, a slightly different way. Like there's an a, I think an undeniable eroticism that goes along with political violence. And I think if you look at kind of if if you're let's just say you're a historian and that's the lens that you take, you're gonna see that sexual violence in particular goes along with war. So, I mean, I can't think of a single instance of war, whether it's an international invasion or whether it's civil strife, um, that doesn't have uh, widespread and systematic levels of sexual violence attached to it. And that's something that we don't, we don't tend to think about it in that way, right? Like we often, we, a lot of people who study international law talk about the crime of sexual violence and how it's a scourge and how we need to eradicate it and everything. And that's absolutely right. It's horrific. Of course, it's horrific. But I'm really interested in the, qu the questions about like, what is it? Yeah. But, well, one thing about it is I think it's a feature yeah. and not a bug of war like throughout history. And one of the things I used to like about Game of Thrones, I don't think they were doing it because they had any real lofty um, aspirations to accuracy. Uh, the creators of the show, but there was a lot of gratuitous uh, sex and rape in there, but I thought it was good in the fact that it kind of accurately showed how intermesh and almost inextricable that sexual violence uh, was. The one thing they didn't do too much of, and you could tell me about your experience with this, there's also a lot of um, yeah. sexual rape. In yes. That. In war, that um, I guess they probably thought it was icky. They didn't want to go there. <laughs> we'll talk about Thrones, ickiness later, but, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but th there's a lot yeah. of that too. There's, um, I mean, like sex is just a really big part of it's, and for sometimes it's almost like an incentive to join up. Like that's part of the spoils of of war. Yeah, yeah. and I think you're so. So that's really interesting. So I, you, you're absolutely, I think you're totally right. We, when we talk about, you mentioned gratuitous violence. And so a lot of the critique, there was a certain strand of, let's say, popular feminist critique of Game of Thrones, right? So you'd see that online, uh, you know, in, in public, facing public, you know, popular publications, we'd be very upset about, oh, there's so much rape in Game of Thrones. What's going on here? This is gratuitous. And in fact, you're totally right. It's not gratuitous. That's what happens in war. And so in a sense, there in, a, in an important sense, there'd be a real lack of like uh, genuineness or, or commitment to a reflection of the topic if you were to leave that out. Yeah, it's it's so like what were some of the things that you uh, kind of shocked you and you took away from from that that ended up influencing the rest of your uh, work. Oh yeah. Um, like stuff in that I've seen, like kind of in the quote unquote field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, quote unquote exactly. war stories. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally. So that's a great question. Um, there are a bunch of different ways of answering that. I don't, so my, my, uh, I have done some, what you would call some kind of field work, right? So I've spent, uh, I lived in, um, kind of immediate 
post-conflict Sierra Leone. So in uh, like something like 2006, no, it was 2007 that I was there. Um, so it was very in really in the immediate aftermath of, um, of the civil war there. And that was a, I mean, there's a lot to be said there. So that's obviously a formative experience, but like part of what was a couple of things. One so interestingly, I was working at the court um, set up by the UN in cooperation with the government of Sierra Leone that was meant to try um, what they considered to be the most severe war crimes that happened during the war. And for anyone who has seen, like, remember that movie Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the conflict we're talking about, um, right? And so, like, an incredibly brutal war in particular because there were specific acts of brutalization, um, including uh, this practice of uh, like amputation was a big thing. Yeah. So what you would see kind of in everyday Freetown was, you know, people just walking around without it, it, it live, trying to live their life in a, in a horrific situation with amputated limbs, which like on some level, yeah, was shocking. But what was more shocking to me was the way in which the Canadian investigators, because part of what Canada the U.S. was a huge supporter of this particular court, but so so was the British, you know, due to their colonial legacy. Um, but so were the Canadians. And their, one of their main contributions was to send a bunch of RCMP officers. So that's the royal, the famous Royal Canadian Mountain Police. Yeah. <laughs> like our FBI, essentially. They sent, they sent a bunch of those dudes there and they were meant to be like the main investigators. So like there would have been something more authentic if they had been dressed up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be really weird. This yeah, right? or something. <laughs> like something would have been maybe more authentic because they were just kind of there, you know, having their little African experience. And what was interesting to me was the way that they talked about brutality. So they were really obsessed with telling, like you'd go to a party, you know, these expat things that are a lot of partying going on, a lot of people being extreme, you know, having their experience and, you know, the, the, their heart of darkness experience. It's really grotesque, a lot of it. But, but these guys... And they were, and all of them that I knew were men were really obsessed with talking about cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, and all that's a bit of a long story, but just to say that, you know, in terms of something that really, what, yeah. Quick, quick question Was there actual cannibalism there, or did they so have I think a both, of cannibalism? Right. So, okay. so, and that's what was so interesting to me was to see, to encounter an actual conflict, which was a conflict about resources and a conflict about colonialism at root. And then there was, and then there was this layer of international law, which didn't care about a history of colonialism and didn't care about the global arms trade or diamond trade or rubber trade or whatever. They just wanted to talk about, you know, the bad guys who cut off people's limbs. And so there's, you're totally right. There's this fetishization like African barbarity that was really running the show. And that was the thing that these investigators wanted to talk about, you know, and that was alarming to me. That's really, alarming. Yeah. Mm, that's really interesting because th there's a book, the person who wrote this book died. I always want to have them on, but they uh, died, but it's called the delectable Negro. And it's all about um, how in the white imagination, the white supremacist imagination, uh, there's a fixation with uh, black yeah. people as food and it ties it into cannibal uh fantasies and it's um uh, it's pretty interesting it talks about how a lot of lynchings involved uh removing body parts and actually eating them sometimes even in the, okay so in the trevor South, you've you know, solved about 25 problems in my life today just for the audience to know a lot of them happen <laughs> offline but continue this is amazing continue yes it's called uh delectable negro uh Actually, you should get on Andre because Andre I know knows this book. I should have told you about it. Uh, <laughs> Blame Andre. Uh, Andre Domi's former former guest. Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, you may be interested in that because uh, you saying that makes you think of that book. That book, um, that's like the crux of the book about the um, extent to which uh, cannibalism and fantasies of eating uh, black people, but also literally eating uh, black people. I had no idea there was the actual cannibalism of black people taking place in. Uh, America. I think it even tied in Jeffrey Dahmer into that tradition because most of his uh, victims were uh, like that's all. Yeah, it is and it topic, isn't. That's but, that. Yeah. Thank you so much. And can I just mm -hmm. like I don't want to tell me if I'm going off on a tangent because like academics oh, are want to show, do. Oh my god, this show. This show is just like ninety percent tangent. <laughs> okay. <fine. laughs> so at any point, just rein me in. I'll shut up. But like. 
This is great because I was literally a couple of days ago having this conversation with respect to treatment of Indigenous populations in North America as well, right? So there's this whole, the figure of the cannibal has been important uh, historically as a way of signifying the or marking the boundary between the civilized and the and the barbaric, right? And so, so I, I mean, I just have to read this book. So that's an, exactly another. I, yeah, go ahead. I, I'll give you the full the full name with the um, subheading because the delectable Negro, human consumption and homoeroticism within U.S. slavery. Yeah, Andre should have told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's amazing. Um, and totally on point because a friend of mine happens to be doing this uh, like related project um, about the figure of the cannibal has actually been it's called a in in the in the Anishinaabe um, indigenous uh, uh, culture this figure of the Watiko which is sort of the tra- the English translation is the cannibal and the way in which that figure has been dealt with historically in indigenous legal traditions in Canada, probably also in the U.S., because as we know, that border is a fake made up colonial imposition. That figure has been, instead of putting the cannibal out there as somebody to be like othered, you know, and made made the barbarian and made into a savage, um, the idea uh, traditionally uh, in terms of social processes has been made to um, look inward and recognize that each one of us has that darkness inside of us, right? And yeah. so the 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 question yeah. there is, how do we talk about the cannibal in terms of community as opposed to othering? But again, sorry, a famous tangent. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, you have not seen much of the show. Like we do that a lot, and it's fine. Oh, you know something interesting too that we talked about on the show, but with that is how we noticed once that there's all these names. I mean, like non-black. Non-white people do it too, but I think it's something they internalize from white people. But no one really describes white people as food, but every race kind of has food descriptions. Like black people are called chocolate, Latinas are called spicy. There's like, like we were talking about how there's no real, they don't Aren't call like white people. Um, but the cracker thing is actually meant to be, a, that's interesting. The, I guess the cracker thing happens, but there's a weird talk about the etymology of cracker. Some people say it's cracking oh. the whip. Some people say it's saltine, but even then it's not, Describes that in delectable. You know they do they do mayo too. <laughs> yes, of course, but, right. But, but yeah. they do that. What's interesting with that is like the cracker and the mayo are meant to be I bland. Think, yeah, almost like yeah. bland. Yeah, yeah. So it's like even when they do get described as food, it gets like um something that you don't really aren't excited to eat. But like the non-white people get all these uh right exotic. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, there's I a think lot there's there. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think it's all covered in that book. I never finished the book myself, so I um, it's always on my to-do list to finish that book. So ever since I started the show, because I'm always reading other people's stuff who are going to be on the show, I'm always putting down like my non-show reading. So I've been like reading that book for like, um, forever. But if if you want to read that book and we come back and talk about it, like me, you, and I'm Andre, on it. It's done. Be, it's a date. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's I think it's the that only means way you have to come to Toronto. Now, so I can tie it into the. Sh- <laughs> I probably will. So let's see. But yeah, yeah. So tell me more about, uh, back from the tangent. So tell me more about how you got from there to uh, here yeah. with the Me Too. Because this has kind of become like uh, your beat. And like, did you fall into it or was it like a conscious decision? That's an interesting question. I mean, any t- so I'm of the, a little bit of the belief that like conscious decisions are generally bad ones. And more often than not, we should pay attention to like the pushes and pulls that are like happening underneath the surface or that people in our circles are, you know, telling us or encouraging us us to do. And so the Me Too thing. So a couple of things. One is, is it's related to the international law work in the sense that part of the international law work I've done has been, as I just mentioned, right, focused on uh, figuring out what to do with sexual violence and rape besides simply saying it's bad and trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Of course, those things are both true, but, you know, d- doing a little bit of a deeper dive. And so in that sense, being concerned with, again, sexual violence and rape out in the everyday context is not actually that different from the war context. But the specific story was that uh, a couple of years ago. So like Me Too has been on the go for like two years now, I guess. We just had the two year anniversary, right? What's her name was tweeting about a Milano, Alyssa. <laughs> and and yeah. uh, I, I happened to be on vacation in China and I was like, I couldn't sleep because I was jet lagged and like, and the whole, it was after the Weinstein thing, but not long after. So it was like, 
Weinstein had happened, but I was on vacation. I wasn't really paying attention. And then the Louis C.K. thing happened. And it was that point that a friend of mine reached out and was like, you know, I really, everything I've read seems shitty. And I'd really like to hear what you have to say about this. And I just kind of took them seriously because I trust my friends more than I trust my own judgment. (laughs) And so that's, yeah, that's how I got on it. But the Louis C.K. stuff was really, and it continues to be important. I find that particular example and also the way in which the movement, um, if that's what we're going to call it, I, you know, I think movement gives it too much credit, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in scare quotes movement, um, the way in which they've gone after like these liminal types, right? So these fringe society characters, like we want to talk about it as uh, bringing down so-called powerful men. And, you know, it has done that, but it's also attacked um, like the, the figure of the comedian, which, you know, historically is, is, is a fringe figure, a person on the edges of society, a person who's really questioning our commitments. So yeah, that's how it came about. I mean, it's, it's kind of tough because like, uh, in theory, that's what a comedian is, but then there's a talk about, oh, but you know, a comedian can technically fit that role, but be powerful. But the other thing is too, it's, does it really work? Like whether the comedian is fringe or whether they're actually powerful, um, I feel like there's a lot of follow-up where kind of nothing really happens. Um, like, as far as I know, Weinstein, a lot of stuff has been dropped against him. Um, Louis C.K. has had a hiccup, but he's gradually uh, coming back. Like, I feel like a lot of his cancellation is a little bit overstated. Like, I think the only, like, real people who have, um, like, I guess Bill Cosby is probably one of the few, like, real, I think, solid takedowns uh weinstein there's there's still like charges being dropped not enough proof uh in limbo and people kind of barely i mean maybe you you're closer to the ground than me but do you feel people still talk about weinstein even that yeah i mean i feel like he's kind of so the way the way i started thinking about this was like he for he kind of play he plays a certain role in in the discourse right so it's not so much about him as a person as it is about weinstein is like this yeah, he's a like symbol. a mythical king. Yeah, exactly. You talk about him as a symbol, but as far as actually actively hounding him and getting him taken down, I feel like that doesn't happen. You just talk about him as like a, a warning or a symbol or an emblem. But, you know, I don't feel like there's a real plan for like, okay, we got to take Weinstein down. Uh, what's next? Uh I feel like it was kind of like for example, yeah. R. Kelly. There was a yeah, I watched it. And surviving <laughs> Did R. you see Kelly. it? Yeah, there was. Oh, yeah, I saw that one. Uh, yeah. yeah, I saw that one. Uh, yeah, I had like mixed feelings about it because I thought it was a noble endeavor, but like the stuff where they were saying like it's a black barbershop tradition to uh, talk oh about God. underage girls. I was like, what <laughs> barbershop are you? <laughs> you know, like what? there was some weird like. Agendas in there. That was like, you know, a lot of people got mad about that. They were like, oh, we've been to barbershops all our lives. Like, no one sits around talking about. Like, there was some weird. Like, some of the people involved in that project were um these black feminists who like to push this idea of uh, black patriarchy being this thing that's analogous to uh, white patriarchy, and they just kind of try to superimpose like theories of like uh, white rape culture onto um you know this construct and. This is not to say that there isn't like sexism or bullying or rape or whatever that happens in the black community, but they're kind of making this organized like cabal of like black guys in barbershops just covering for uh, R. Kelly. And then what it left out to me that bothered me, right, is that like there were black people who supported R. Kelly and there were black people from the beginning who, you know, hated R. Kelly and wanted him taken down, just like there were white people who were against R. Kelly and there were white people who loved R. Kelly through the 2000s. Like, um, the remix to Ignition was made popular by, like, like white people loved remix to Ignition. There were remix to Ignition parties all through, like, these hipster um, neighborhoods and whatever, and it was, like, a big trend uh, by Ignition. There was this article, and I forget the name of the publication, but it was a white guy writing, like, remix to Ignition should be the national anthem to America. And all these people knew but that he was... Uh, accused of uh pedophilia and stuff and there was also this thing happening with trapped in the closet where it became like a camp a camp classic ifc like independent film channel was running trapped in the closet uh marathons and stuff so like everybody had a little bit of guilt as far as turning a blind eye like lady gaga did a 
song with him and he was performing on Saturday Night Live in a award show with Lady Gaga doing uh, the R. Kelly Lady Gaga duet. And some other people did songs with him. Like all through the 2000s, um, for a while, I think it was even more popular with white people than black people at the time. But that documentary kind of made R. Kelly seem like this unique black community pathology while white people were just had no idea what was going on. And uh, I think it kind of let... Like, there was a lot about that. I mean, that's a whole different <laughs> I mean, topic. But yeah, I mean... But it kind of ties into a lot of what I feel about like Me Too, where it's like, it's kind of... I feel like a lot of it is this privileged white lady movement. There's a little bit of extra energy that's had for like uh, the black targets, which is not to say that they're innocent or they deserve whatever, but the white ones kind of become the talk of a lot of stuff. And then... Like, one more example. Like, Aziz Ansari... I felt it was very weird to have him equated with Louis C.K. Like, what he did was, that was a weird flattening that I just found really uh, weird. Whether you think he was out of line or not, he was not doing what was on the level of uh, Louis C.K. But, yeah, it was really racialized to me, that, that season sorry thing. No, there's a lot going on That's there. I think, like, so there's so much to unpack there, for lack of a better word. But like, it's a very academic word. Let's unpack what's going on. But the... <laughs> <laughs> you just finished seeing Slave Play, so unpack yeah. is like <laughs> we're gonna like, we're yeah. gonna process right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so also like the I thought so I recently watched the new Chappelle thing. Yeah, and his reflection on on R. Kelly was interesting too. Like the fact I guess he'd been like asked to be in it, and he was like, "What the fuck? I don't know this guy." <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, like that there was, and I think what that speaks to, and I'm not in any sort of sense, any, you know, an expert on the R. VR Kelly case or whatever, but I think there's an interesting way, like you, you already talked about, which was there was a campaign to do something, to have yeah. a result. And I think that's what's really interesting is like, I think we can have really interesting and granular discussions that actually seek to unflatten what, you know, the complexities of this, which is very important. But I think equally important is this on i'm not going to say the word yet i'm not going to say process or impact is trying to figure out what's going on with these organized campaigns you know because part of the part of what gives the me too in scare quotes movement power is a mythology around where it comes from right so the idea is that it's this grassroots thing where uh you know women are just kind of ad hoc feeling empowered enough to add their voices and that it isn't, you know, the part of the thing that made supposed to make it powerful is that it's not some organized campaign to take down X, Y, or Z guy for ulterior motives of, you know, Y or Z, whatever they are, that it's actually like a, you know, a grassroots thing that we must believe women, women can't possibly lie or have other reasons to do what they're doing other than their pure, authentic victimization. And that I'm really interested in, in, you know, not, yeah, just complexifying that. Yeah, the belief women thing is really interesting in that aspect because it kind of makes it so that you're automatically, well, well there's one thing interesting about it, right? Because I don't argue about this too much because it's just a lot of times not worth the grief, which I think makes what you do incredible because you dive head first. But I also think being a woman puts you in a different position because there's things I could probably say as a black person criticizing things going on uh, in the black community that, you know, you wouldn't be able to say. So I think that probably helps. But one of the things that bothered me with uh, Believe Women is um, like there's this idea, I'm sure you heard this a bunch of times, where the idea should be don't automatically disbelieve women. Uh, you know, you should always entertain every accusation as seriously as possible and investigate. Like, there should be no automatic um, dismissal of um, women. Like, you know, you shouldn't, you should not automatically disbelieve women. But the idea of automatically believe anybody, I think, is very um, dangerous, especially once it gets racialized. The history of this country, there's, you can't ignore it. It's a history of, I mean, the, the exoneration projects, that's the biggest crime that uh gets exonerated is rape and the biggest group that gets exonerated is uh black men but what i find interesting and i don't know if you've um found this happen yourself but what i find interesting is when i bring this up people will tell me this which is i find interesting they say that is what believe women means they're like uh you obviously haven't been reading the right people when people say believe women they're not saying just automatically believe women it means don't automatically disbelieve women. And I think, no, I've clearly seen people who <laughs> use it to mean you should never, ever, ever question 
Yeah, so there's this kind of weird thing that happens where people just kind of do this no true Scotsman or move the things around. So it's like it's a moving target, Me Too, where I feel like almost anything you say, people will just say, oh, no, it's actually this. And then you don't end up, um, people talk past each other. Yeah, totally. So I think that's right. I think, yeah, I believe women is interesting. Also because like, so if we're going to look at Me Too as part of a trajectory of stuff, that actually had kind of been like broiling or bubbling, <laughs> broiling, bubbling up, boiling under the surface for some time. Um, and so believe women as a as a like hashtag. So it's harder to hashtag don't immediately discredit women, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, don't disbelieve women. Even that's too much. Yeah. Yeah. It up like 24 characters. Yeah. So, so you can't sell. But that's kind of, I mean, that's half the story right there is that you can't, physically or conceptually sell complexity on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You can't hashtag nuance. It's not Precisely. It doesn't work. Yeah, hashtag nuance. I like it. So, so that's part of the story. And then the other thing is like, believe women actually as a hashtag itself started a bit before um, before me too. And as you mentioned, Bill, Bill Cosby is a great example, right? So he also was a few years before Me Too. And so Me Too is actually part of something that I think like as an academic that I'm trying to describe as a broader wave, social wave that we can um, identify and, and study. But yeah, I mean, and so I'm going to I'm going to cite um, Jeannie Suk, who teaches at Harvard Law School here. She writes for The New Yorker um, on a regular basis for people who are interested. But she's long been saying since before Me Too, even that you're, you're exactly what you just said. When it comes down to it, the hashtag believe women or the invocation that we should believe women, it's it's an evidentiary claim, right? As you said, it's saying that pe- women are more likely, this specific woman, let's call her Karen, is more likely to be believed because other women are saying me too, right? So that's the logic that's going on. The problem is when you put an or the quandary at least, is that when you put this evidentiary logic into the public space, like so the realm of public discourse, and so let's say the court of public opinion, what's going, it it becomes a really intractable problem because the court of public opinion doesn't care about, um, about evidential considerations as such. Right? Do you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So, I mean, I mean yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a due process type of. Yeah, it is. Um, it is, and so yeah, I believe women is fuck. It's a tough one. But but you know, it's also weird because now you can't even say due process. Like if you just say yes, like if you like like you know how yeah. like free speech is now considered yeah. a um dishonest thing to say by right wingers. Like you know when it's when something comes up and they say it was a free speech issue, they'll just say oh you really are don't want to say racism or misogyny like you know you've um yeah just use this buzzword i feel like due process has kind of um become that like if you say due process it's considered oh you're just using a buzzword to excuse rapists and misogyny and stuff like, yeah it's absolutely now a code word for conservatism which is really unfortunate yeah yeah and it and it's um and it's become like like weird that way it's become almost like a dirty word to to say but what I think is interesting about it is I think believe women almost becomes a self-creating problem because if you create this idea that you're supposed to automatically believe women, then I think in a way that almost incentivizes people to lie if they're being dishonest because now you've announced I'm going to believe you the minute you say something, you know? And I, I think it's yeah. kind of a trap for, uh, you know, as a standard, it, it kind of invites its own problem. No, absolutely. You're, you're totally right. You're like a, so there are, I think it's it's still like, like really difficult to reckon with examples of where we might say something like Me Too has gone wrong, like like even by its on its own standards, right? So situations where uh, like a woman has come forward with an obviously vindictive claim based on personal grievances, but is going to benefit from believe women. But let me tell you, like what's even more insidious to me is the very popular idea, like very popular idea today that it's okay if a few quote unquote innocent men, uh, uh, you know, end up being roadkill because the broader project is about shifting the pendulum, right? Oh, and and that goes against the very 
basis of uh, a basic legal principle, which is like the worst thing to do uh, between a guilty person going free and an innocent person being found guilty. By far, the worst thing is that an innocent person be found guilty. That goes against a key founding legal principle. Yeah. But also just like basic. So, you know, people get really upset. They get their backs up when they hear you talking about the law because they want, you know, I get a lot of blowback just because I happen to be a law professor and I don't have any specific dedication to the law. Let me tell you my whole, my, the reason why I study it is because I think it's fucked and it needs yeah. to be dismantled by and large. Um, and I only became an actual, you know, official lawyer about two weeks ago, like with, you know, sort of kicking and screaming for practical reasons. Congratulations. Thank, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm part of the system now. It's awesome. Um, but, you know, uh, so people get really upset when you say things like, well, that violates, you know, basic principles of legal fairness because people have had it with the law. And like, you know, in many ways, fair enough. But, you know, the people who should have had it the most with the law are racialized communities namely black people if you're talking about America. And so, you know, and and you and those aren't the people you hear you hear saying let's do away with the law, right? It's as you said, it's the white ladies who are saying let's do away with the law. And frankly, I don't think they're in a position where they have like a, the moral authority to do that. But the crazy thing is a lot of black people I think are kind of going along with it mainly because I think they kind of view themselves as a place of privilege or they have proximity to um these white people, and I think they're going to be in for like a rude wake-up call if they're not careful. Because one thing that stood on Twitter, and I got into a lot of, well, not a lot, but I got into <laughs> some trouble about it, was I was saying that I didn't like how the Bill Cosby case was handled. But nowadays, if you say that, that's tantamount to saying that I think this person is definitely innocent. Like, you can't even say that. But what I was saying is, whether or not this person is guilty or innocent, there's a way to do things. And just because... You set some kind of precedent for doing the wrong thing now to get a good result. Sooner or later, that precedent that you've created, where you've lowered the evidentiary standard or whatever, is going to end up biting somebody that you like. Like, I got kind of raked over the coals for for that. It had to do with the statute of limitations thing, where they did something funny with the statute of limitations to make sure they can catch Bill Cosby, where they made it right at the end of the statute of limitations in a way that's not very typical. And they were just looking for all these ways to get him. I'm like, this is really scary shit to me. Like, you should not be doing this because the government doesn't always go after bad people. Even the, even if you think they're going Generally, after Generally, they bad. don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. And like, nine times out of ten, this is going to be used against, you know, some type of activist or some, you know, and yeah, I just became like, uh, you know, a Bill Cosby apologist and stuff like that. <laughs> and 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 I, yeah, this is this weird kind of short-sightedness about it that kind of scares me. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously that's, I mean, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but like, as far as like diagnosing problems, like there's a lot of problems to diagnose, but what do you think actually needs to change about it that uh, you think can be changed as far as the conversation, as far as... About Me Too specifically? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, thanks. That's a great question. I don't know if anyone's even asked me that before, but like, and this is a great move you're making with the bottle of wine that I brought. <laughs> you don't, don't blow up my spot. <laughs> but so like a, a few things i think uh part of what's being left out that really troubles me so two and i think they're thank you so much and i think they're related moves so they're wonderful thank you so i think so what you just so if i'm gonna repackage what you just said i would say what i heard you just saying was had a lot to do with like how our society and again you know uh, in the West, et cetera, but whatever, in North America, let's say, or in English speaking, in the English speaking world, we, um, broadly speaking, we are really punitive. So, so there's a way in which the, this idea, like the commit, the punitive commitments of me too, don't challenge anything about the status quo. In fact, they just end up re-entrenching re the status quo, right? And which, which is this really, headlong commitment to solving complex social problems through punitive measures. And those can involve um, sending people to jail, to prison, you know, um, or that they can also involve just being really mean on, um, online or causing someone to get fired, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is punitive and the discourse around it is fundamentally cruel. And, and that's not something um, I can get behind, but I think something about the punitivity and the cruelness uh, is is so there's a righteousness involved in that kind of a way of talking about things that that I worry about because 
it, I think it, it makes it easier for us to talk about to, to, let's just say this, to be really concentrated on trying to normativize the way that people have sex. So, so not only is it the case that Me Too discourse is, is really, you know, someone needs to lose their job. Someone needs to be publicly shamed. Someone needs to be outed for being a predator. You know, someone needs to be put in prison. Someone needs to pay a fine, um, et cetera, et cetera. But they need to, they're doing that in service of, in service, sorry, of a, of a conservative and regressive sexual agenda. So, so those are the two things I think that they go hand in hand and they need to change. We need to be less fucking cruel to each other. We're all sinners, you know, whatever, like a little bit of Jesus. Andre always says, I need Jesus. I have Jesus now. We've, we've, we've literally just joined a church, but but yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's a very, it's the most non-church church church that there is, but, but honestly though, for real, like people just don't be so mean to each other. And we were talking before we, we started recording about kind of online culture and Twitter culture and what it does to your brain. And part of it is that it encourages you to be a cruel fucking human being. No, it's true. And that's something that I think, um, it's, I'm becoming more, I was one of those people that was a big believer in the power of online and stuff, but now I'm starting to think it's one of the worst places to incubate a movement, because a lot <laughs> of people there just have a free-floating rage, and they're just looking for yeah. something to change, like the rage is kind of there already, and it's just free-floating anxiety and rage, and they're just looking for something to channel it against, and then a lot of times they don't even really care about what they're really getting mad about, they just say, hey, this is a righteous cause. I can just find a target to spew this poison. Like, get it out of me. This poison is in me, in me all day long. And now I have a righteous target that I can just spew guiltlessly at all day long. And now I think building any movement there is just um, terrible. Yeah, so it is kind of scary in that aspect. Um, Can I ask you, not hmm? to interject, but like, so I think there's an important difference between, um, let's say, righteous anger and cruelty. Well, so well, anger well, is really valuable. Yeah, yeah go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I think is, I think it's a story they tell themselves. Yeah. They want something that they can pretend is a righteous yeah, yeah. thing so that they're free to be cruel. They're like, um, hey, if I just go and just, you know, make fun of a disabled kid, I'm just a cruel person. But if you give me a target that I can disguise as righteous anger, you know, so, so I'm sorry, but, but go on. No, I, no, no. I interrupted yeah, you, but I was yeah. just saying like, so the stereotypical but not wrong case is you know, Dr. King was angry as fuck, but he wasn't cruel. Or that's, yeah. you know, even though they tried to cancel him with Me Too as well. I don't know if you noticed that. but Oh, yeah, they're trying to retroactively cancel yeah. him, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, they tried to go after him like a couple of months into the movement. But, you know, and so, so, so I just want to be clear that I'm not trying to dismiss anger. I think anger can be very productive, but anger and cruelty are just, they're just different things. And you can be angry and still committed to like prison abolition, you know? Yeah, and one of the things I like about uh, your work is that you don't just treat it as prescriptive or reactive stuff. You get to the heart of changing the whole idea of what we think about sex and what sex means, but also a kind of realism about sex. Like, it, like I'm just going to say some phrases and you just let you expand on them. But you, one of them is uh, the word binary comes up a lot and how a lot of the Me Too um, description takes the takes a binary view of uh, sex that's not really reflected in uh, reality. And if you could talk about that as far as, oh yeah, you know, yes or no, nothing in the middle, you know. That's really great. Thanks for the prompt. So, and that was like the perfect segue. You're a genius at this. It's really hard to talk to people on, on mic and you're so good at it. But the, yeah, the binary thing. So there's a bunch of different ways we can think about that. One, like, so people who have non-binary sexualities are, you know, queers, right? And so, and I and I really do fundamentally believe that like on, on some important level, we are all queer. Uh, and that's one way into this. And if if that's true, right? If then you need, then we need to be very suspicious about bright line distinctions between anything. And that's an observation that is, I think is true of any treatment of law. It, it's not a specifically specifically important to studying sexuality in the law. But if we're going to talk about it in in this frame that you've presented, um, the thing, the category um, or the rule that comes immediately to lot to mind is um, consent, right? Yes. So, <laughs> so 
So consent is being presented in the public discourse. And let me just say, and and I'm sure many people already know this, but the but consent consent legally is is the thing that distinguishes between sex that is just sex and sex that is sexual assault, right? So it's the distinction um, between rape and, and just having a good time or maybe even not a good time, right? So it's important to point that out. Sometimes sex sucks and that's okay too. But, but consent is a line between sex and sexual assault and the way it's presented to us and the law is, is in large part responsible for this and I think it's bad is that it's, um, it is, uh, we either have it or you don't. And increasingly part of what the Me Too again, in scare quotes movement, is committed to is really, really, really pressing hard on this discourse of consent, right? So if so, the idea is something like this. If we just understood consent better, then we wouldn't have this problem with sexual misconduct as it's, as it's become known. Yeah, and this idea that you can just create this elaborate taxonomy of consent that just covers everything, like, you know, enthusiastic consent, regular consent then just no consent and there's um nothing in the middle and one of the things you talked about in one of your articles was about how sometimes you can want sex and never explicitly um consent or you can yeah. consent and not want sex and that's how real sex is it's messy it's not always um that transactional and and it just doesn't work that way like there's a kind of divorce from how sex really works that you kind of need to make the current uh, framework work. Like, like there's a phrase you had that I like where you said non-binary understanding of male-female desire, where it's either you're in a frigid state or you're the opposite, which is a slut. And how sometimes even some of these people who are trying to... Uh, this particular article, which I think is pretty good, if you can get your hands on it, is Me Too, <laughs> Me Too as Sex Panic. Uh, this kind of idea that even some of the women... They given examples in this article who were kind of talking about their stories had to make clear that they were switching into this um, frigid woman mode. Like, you know, I realized I needed to be in this committed relationship or I I, I realized I didn't want to have um, sex. And I'm curious about that, the whole non-binary understanding of male-female uh, desire and the whole frigid woman um slut dichotomy. I mean, it sounded to me kind of like related to the Madonna horror thing, but yeah. I'll, I'll let you elaborate on that. Yeah, no, that's totally right. So I, th I think, um, I think the example there was, it was interesting. It was actually a story that Martha Nussbaum had told at some talk she'd given in London. Yeah, that was it. And it was actually, it was right before Me Too erupted. And so it goes along with this the idea that, you know, it was really kind of bubbling under the surface. And, and she talks about what, you know, having an interaction that she now she, what she actually describes so in according to her story she had an interaction with an older famous man who she chooses not to name that was actually violently disruptive but but when she's telling the story about herself she's saying you know part of the reason why I agreed to to even see this man in the first place and this was I believe it was in the 60s that would make sense or the early 70s was that she was, you know, she thought she was participating in the culture. And what I assume that she meant by that was something like the free love kind of whatever culture um, back then before either of us were born. But yes. um, and that then, you know, she normalized. And so she describes how it was when uh, she settled down with someone who was her own age. Explicitly, she mentions that. Uh, and that was this, you know, the scenario where she kind of grew up and learned um, what sex was all about. And and part of the reason that story uh, that I described was interesting because it was an example of like what I've, I, I think I've identified across, you know, uh, Me Too stories is actually like the script that they follow. So there's this, you know, you'll often see young women, as you said, like the generally white women, you know, but young women who, young white women, um, some others, um, but who uh, are experimenting or whatever, but they don't really know their own minds. And they end up in these situations that are not satisfying and uh, you're on a scale of everything between simply being quote grossed out or actually being violently raped 
Um, and that they only understand like the, the reality of what happened to them years later, once they've sort of settled down and normalized and become part of like, you know, productive capitalist society or whatever. Yeah. And this is idea that they have to buy into this conservative, um, framework of the reform slut in mm-hmm. order to tell their story. Like that to make clear, even if I do sound like a slut back then, here are these mitigating factors and I just want you to make sure that you understand I'm no longer a slut. Like there's so much implication that if this person was still a quote unquote slut, they wouldn't deserve the pity and the sympathy. Like, you know, and it, it, it kind of reminded me of the whole idea of the perfect victim in a, in a police shooting. You know what I mean? Like this idea that, oh, Mike Brown might have stole a cigar. So somehow that means he should have been shot on the street in Ferguson. It kind of reminded me of that when I was reading your article, this idea that even though it's considered a progressive fight, this Me Too thing, there's a certain way in which it buys into and reinforces conservative uh, ideas. It's not really challenging as much as it seems to pretend. And um, there was another um, example of a lady named Flanagan. And you put, I thought this was a great uh, excerpt. You said, there's no room for the woman who one day, based on contextually derived information, but without affirmative consent, actually wants her ass to be grabbed by um, a stranger. The dominant Me Too discourse structurally precludes this woman from having her voice uh, heard. I'm so glad you brought that up. So I'm, this this article recently came out, came out and I hadn't looked at it in a long time. So now this is bringing it all back. It's great. The, so that, do you remember the, um, this thing? Again, part of the bubbling up that prefigured Me Too. Do you remember the, it was called Hollaback? Um, is that... Yeah. You to me, Michelle Hollebeck, the author? No, the, not Welbeck. It's called, it was like, oh, it's like, Holl- yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you have a white lady on your show, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you made it sound so like uh, classy. Like, you know, you said Hollebeck. You know, I, I thought, <laughs> oh, Hollebeck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. Oh, I, have so, I, have so, I have so many thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what this is about, right? So that observation, so that prefigured me too. It was a public, it was meant to be this like public awareness raising campaign about street harassment. And who the fuck was har- harassing people, like impoverished people who were racialized? And like, anyway, go there's ahead. I want to hear what you have to say about that. There's a lot of backstory to that. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but that guy has gotten, the guy behind it has gotten in trouble for a lot of racism. Okay. And they found out there were a lot of white people in the video. And he erased them out. There's a story yeah. <laughs> that came out that he erased all the white people out. And they asked him, <laughs> why did he do it? And uh, he gave this kind of weird um, thing. And then he got in trouble with some other kind of racism, right? But they looked into his past and they found out he's involved in all these gentrification projects. And all these... Yeah, where people don't yell at you on the street. Come yeah, on. Yeah, but then a lot of people started thinking, was this video a way to justify gentrifying? Like, hey, here's a white lady walking through a black area and all these black people are yelling at her this is why you need to clean the black people out yeah and make it safe for white women to walk around like like once you find out he was in bed with all these um uh real estate developers and all this stuff and he had explicitly um taken the white people out i guess they didn't fit the narrative you know it makes you think but it kind of shows how like um neoliberalism like i know it's a totally abused uh word but he can put his hands into um, everything, and and you you mentioned that in this, like you actually talk about uh, it. A lot of stuff in this reinforces a lot. Like he's like one of the things you say is um, the framework, the whole punitive framework. This idea, like you know, you're not really changing the whole punitive framework. Uh, you have a quote here: "It adopts the framework of the neoliberal carceral state, focusing on punishment and retribution, not just for." alleged instances of rape, but for a wide range of objectionable, but not criminally actionable behavior, ranging from making of off-color jokes to placing an unwanted hand on a woman's back to persistent sexual threats of violent rape. And then you bring up how, and this is what I thought was very interesting, was the flattening out the range of sexual experience, desire, and erotic possibility open to women. And I'm why don't you explain that part, that last part, flattening out the range of sexual experience, desire, and erotic possibility. So so I think I talk about choking at the end of this piece. Yes. Okay. So. <laughs> I actually have a note here that says choking. 
just that one word. So I used to run around with like, uh, at, uh, like binders that said things like rape project on them. So yeah, it's a good no. So they, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like in public with this stuff, you know, and, but yeah, so I, so I really like choking. It's a re- I think it's a really telling example because it's one of those things. Okay. So I, I'll try not to get too tangenty on you, but um, choking has been a, a real, a bit of a flashpoint in part because the, you guys have an actual law on it, right? In Canada? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, you, you've done a lot of research. No, no, <laughs> I, I want you to write my next think, paper. This is amazing. I did my research. You really do. It's amazing. Like more than anyone I've ever done. That's great. Um, this. Yeah. So that's true. So actually that you'll laugh at this. This is funny. So there is. So you, do you do you remember John Gomeshi at all? So I don't know if that penetrated the U.S. news cycle. No, but that is also on the list of what I'm supposed to ask you. So, okay. So by all means. So we're ahead. hitting all the targets. Yeah, yeah. So making my job easy. <laughs> no, you're making mine easy. Um, so Gian Gameshi was a a really like kind of beloved um, host of of a show called Q on the CBC, which is like Canada's NPR. Um, and anyway, it, it, again, uh, a case much like the, um, Cosby case that prefigured me too. So it was right in the lead up to me too. It was before me too. He got charged with, um, a, a several counts of sexual assault, but one of them was this really weird law that you mentioned, um, which was actually, there's this, it's in a crazy offense. It's in the Canadian criminal code and it's called overcome, um, overcome resistance, uh, by choking. So it's not just choking. It's that you are trying to overcome someone's resistance to you via choking them. So people like intuitively think, especially in the days of Pornhub or whatever, intuitively think that choking is um, like innately sexual. But it turns out um, that historically that offense has been in the code for like over a hundred years and it comes oh, and it wasn't always tied into sex. It had nothing to do with sex. Oh, interesting. It had to do, it came from England. Um, so were people just choking each other to rob each other? No, like, yeah, without, the, yes. So, so people were just mugging each other by yeah. choking? It was garroting. Oh. Do you know what a garroting is all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, oh you, I know what you mean. With, with the, yeah. the garroting, we use like a, a a handkerchief or some kind of rope or something to strangle somebody. Kind of like right? nunchucks, but not nunchucks. You know what I mean? When yeah, you, you got gotcha. the handles on them. Mm-hmm. And so there had been, in the late 19th century, there had been a, like a scourge of garroting in London like in urban London. And so they created this offense. So historically, it's got absolutely nothing to do with sex. Oh, fascinating. See, yeah. I knew you guys had the law. Yeah. I knew it came from England, but I just thought they were just uh, being freaky even back then. I didn't realize it had an original <laughs> non-sexual context. That's interesting. Yeah. So everybody, of course, then thinks that it's sexual. And okay, so what's... Oh my God, I don't... As I said to you before, I'm bad at names. Who's the guy, the former... Um, he was canceled here, the New York... Oh, help me with this. So we're not canceled. Just like this is a regularly used verb. No, I know. It's yeah. awful. It's awful. Yeah. I hate saying it. Kill my, my, my spine prickles every time I say it. But the, who's the New York guy, the, a Jewish DA who had been, oh, you know. I know I know who you're talking about. He, I know exactly who you mean. Um, You know, you can keep talking and I'll look it up. Yeah. So that guy um got done for oh, attempted cancellation on the basis of choking. So um, that was about a year ago. Sanford Rubenstein? No, someone else. Oh, there was another one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had been, he and the, the, the crazy part about it was that he had been actually a proponent of a proposed legal reform in New York State that would make strangulation during sex a specific offense. Was he, he was a lawyer, this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was a DA. Oh, it wasn't Spitz? No, not Spitzer. Oh, my God. yeah sorry it's killing me that i can't remember now his name because that was like a big thing at one point um anyway so so there is oh yeah eric hold not not eric holder eric's uh, Schneiderman. Yes, Schneiderman. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. He wasn't a DA. He was an attorney general. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh oh, and and that was a whole racialized weird thing. But yeah, I I remember now. But but yeah, Eric Schneiderman. Okay. So. So, yeah, so, um, and also, so there's a whole brand of feminists who are really into, so, so basically the story is this, people mistakenly thought that Gomeshi, because he had um, allegedly choked a woman against her consent and he'd been charged with this crime, they thought the crime was inherently sexual. There was then this big discussion about, you know, how choking is so bad and, 
you know, apparently evidence shows that women who have been choked in the past are more likely to be killed in acts of domestic violence by their partners. That's probably true, but it's choking. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that it's choking in a non-sexual context. You know what I mean? So if you're in a physical fight with somebody, you can imagine putting your hands around their throat in a way that's not explicitly sexual. And so the part of, there's a, there's a, a sub movement of sex negative feminists um, who are anti-porn and anti-choking at the same time on the basis that, as I just said, choking leads to higher levels of violence, et cetera. But it's obviously also clearly a sexual <laughs> act that many people derive pleasure from. And it doesn't have to be choking to levels of erotic asphyxiation, right? It could just be, you know, there, there's a, you know, a spectrum and gradations um, but the original question that you had was, so I just wanted to illustrate that choking has popped yeah. up every few months. It pops up in a new, a new variation, right. Of the same theme. And it's one of those acts that, um, the mainstream, uh, in the Me Too movement in, including people like Kate Mann, who, uh, wrote down girl and she's gotten a lot of press, et cetera. She's very opposed to choking. She came out in the New York times, I believe against it. Um, it's one of those sexual practices that we're now made to think is aberrant. So, so it's almost like inherently um, yeah. evil in itself. Like, like it's just not. Yeah. Like, why do you want to choke someone? So it's not even a good context right. to even do it in. It's just like it's almost like um, statutory rape or something, where it's just like a, almost a strict liability thing. Yeah, I like that construction. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Which is absurd. I mean, you'll agree with me. I hope that that's crazy. Oh, no, I think this is a good law. I think they should ban all choking. <laughs> no, 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 of course I agree with you, yeah. <laughs> so that's an example of like a, yeah, a, 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 something that people obviously, you know, and again, it goes back to something I said earlier about like political violence. Violence and sex go together. It's it's true. And, and, and you know, it's also, um, and you you bring this up in the Me Too a Sex Panic piece early on, but you, but. There's like, a, there's like a paraphrase. It's not something you actually put in the article, but it made me think about it. This idea like where, you know, it's not about sex, it's about power, but sex is power. Like it's not, like even in relationships, if you ever talk to a um, couples counselor, I remember I was uh, watching a couples counselor give an interview about couples counseling. And he said, in a relationship, the first thing I always do is find out who's controlling the sex. Because whoever controls the sex uh, is... Right. Usually the one controlling the power, like who's withholding it, who's enforcing it and stuff. And another thing I remember one time, I, I went to a stand-up comedy show and this was like, I thought the guy did a brilliant joke. He said, uh, you know, a lot of you guys, uh, you know, think you're in uh, charge of a relationship. And then he said, okay, guys, by a show of hands, how many of you guys are getting laid tonight? You know, and a lot of guys are kind of laughing uncomfortably and stuff because a lot of people are on dates. <laughs> so Tinder date, <laughs> first yeah, yeah, dates. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're on dates, you know. But then um, he asked ladies in the audience, "How many of y'all are getting laid tonight?" And the cheer was really loud. Right. And you know, the idea was that you know the women have the power of um, the sex. Like the guys can't raise it. Like a couple of married guys or long-term relation guys, relationship guys probably raise their hands because you know they've built that rapport and comfort. They could joke like that, but the Tenuous in the relationship, people could not say anything, but the women kind of had the freedom to uh, say that. And I remember when I saw that that uh, joke in that clip, I was like, I was like, wow, you know, the sex and the power do have something to do together. And I think that's what a lot of times these guys who are like, um, you know, raping or enforcing their sexual desire on someone, they're kind of trying to reclaim that natural power that women have over yeah. the um sexual process i'm like you can't separate the sex from from the power you know no absolutely and i think like so that's totally right and i think like the desire so the normative idea that we should separate them to me is super problematic exactly because it's not how people work yeah like you're not going to reprogram our lizard brain you know in 2019 <laughs> it's built in in some sense and i'm not trying to be like a biological essentialist but there's yeah. something going on there that's not something open to you know rational argumentation i mean even if you look at like uh the things that come out of people's mouths like at the in the heat of good sex you know it'll be like uh whose pussy is this or you know it's like uh it's yours daddy or whatever like it's stuff that sounds kind of rapey like it's like 
to yeah. act like there's not, you know, like when you when you're claiming ownership over someone else's body parts in the heat of sex, there's I'm not saying it's qualitatively the same thing, but there's something about dom the appeal of BDSM, like you know, people try to put things into like a safe, controllable space, but they're I feel like they're trying to tap into that. They they want to tap into you know that kind of uh, tension and like you put in this article. This article treats that tension like it's wrong, similar to how it treats the choking like it's inherently wrong. You're not supposed to admit that choking might turn a woman on. You're not supposed to admit that being, and maybe he thinks anti-feminist, that like even if with her permission, she's, you know what kind of ties into, like there's this thing called race play that happens. And again, to go back to slave play, a lot of black people get offended because you're like, you're not even supposed to consent to that. You're not even supposed to consent to uh, letting a white person talk to you like that, even if it's under a controlled, damn, I think I've like, Tricked myself into giving slave play some You've credit. Done but, it. Yeah, I just saw it, it yeah. happen. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'll give it some credit in that. Like, like I'm not quite satisfied with the answers it came with, but I think it is an interesting question. Like, uh, if someone is agreeing to consent to the thing, if something in there is um, attracting them, should you find a way to work within that, or should you prescriptively uh, ban it? And I think feminists have kind of struggled with that, and you kind of talk about that. The sex positive versus sex negative tension in Me Too. Yeah. yeah. And that's old, like the the whole feminist, um, really, feminists have struggled for decades with sex positivity and sex negativity is one way to frame it. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't capture everything and it is an old framing, but it's also one that is just coming back that people can't, can't get away from. And it's just like this, it's, it's, it's in some sense as simple as this, really reckoning with like, why are we so uncomfortable with spending time in a moment and a place that we, you know, does weird shit that evokes, it evokes history and context. And like, and I, again, not to bring it, not to explicitly bring it back to slave play, and I'm not like standing for this like work of art, it's not my intention, but, but part of what I found valuable was like, it was like, okay, so you're going to sit with this discomfort that, you know, we've all kind of thought about on some level, not because we desire it or not because we think it's something good or because that's how we should order the world in the future or in the present even, but sitting with things that make us profoundly uncomfortable and what's even more interesting, being turned on by them and just accepting the fact that what turns us on sexually, you know, it's not... You can't force it into a, a consent box, for example. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. <laughs> <laughs>